welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, you'll hear more about, oh, you guys know it all already. It's the end of uh, 2023. <laughs> <laughs> Angela didn't know I was going to do that. I was holding in laughter, though, from the dancing that was happening <laughs> that no one will see before we started. So I'm yeah. glad to let that out. <laughs> hey, is our annual December look back episode. We're going to switch it up a little bit. We're looking back at our predictions for 2023 and see what we got right and what was just aspirational. <laughs> so starting off here, I've got one question that I'm going to ask this guest this one time. Ooh. How was 2023, Angela? How was 2023? Oh, you're hitting <laughs> me with the with the really deep stuff right out yeah. of the gate. It was fine. And I say that <laughs> because... I think that's probably a sentiment that a lot of folks are having. It was a year that was filled with, at least from a marketing standpoint, actually, and an enrollment standpoint, especially in higher ed, there was a lot of movement and uh, a lot of change. You know, we've talked a little bit about generative artificial intelligence on this mm -hmm. podcast, and I think that's probably one of the bigger shifts that we're seeing on the marketing side, even though adoption is not, it's far from robust mm -hmm. <laughs> in education. I think there's still more questions than, than answers, but a, a lot has happened. I think people are still trying to get their arms around some of the changes that we've seen over the course of, of this calendar year. But also some some really positive things. You know, I, I think with every challenge, there are opportunities. So there are some opportunities for marketers to rethink their approach to their day-to-day -day work. There are opportunities for folks on the enrollment side to think a little bit differently about their processes and the way that they're engaging prospective students. So I think I'm ending this year with a lot of optimism for the Good. future. Good. How do you think 2023 was? <laughs> it, it's It's been a very fluid year for the industry. It's one of those, I, it hurts every time you see a college close or you see yes. enrollment down, offices yeah. struggling. But then you also see the individual students who are so excited to be starting college, mm -hmm. to be graduating. It's, there, there's ups and there's downs. Uh, I think yeah. on, on the personal side, though, I'm very excited for 2024. That makes me a little bit forget a little bit of some of 2023 because 2024 the podcast turns four years old oh my insights turns five <laughs> years old i mean it's these these things these big milestone moments they're really exciting we're, we're closing in on a hundred thousand podcast downloads which for something that started out once a month is incredible yeah that's that's kind of where my head's at i love it yeah. the ei podcast is going to be a kindergartner Oh my, it's coming up <laughs> on great. it. It's coming up. Yep. Soon we'll be driving. We'll see. <laughs> Stay tuned, guys. The milestones continue. Well, Angela, in this episode, we're looking back at our predictions. And I know you have, you have five K-12 enrollment marketing predictions. Do you want to dive mm -hmm. into what those were and, and how they're looking? Yes. Do you, do you want me to go one by one and, and do yeah. some spitballing? Okay. Let's, let's hit them all out and, and we'll kind of chat throughout. This is always the, the fun episode. I feel like <laughs> you can sit in front of a, a fireplace with a cup of hot cocoa and uh, just listen in and laugh with us. I love it. I love it. So I the five that I had, and it's I, I will say, 
I give us a higher grade for accuracy this year. <laughs> These years. I think I think we did a little better. Uh, yeah. The first one I had is that schools and districts that think globally about their digital footprint will win. I'll come back to that. Keeping up with your peer schools will be more important than ever. Prospective student-centric recruitment strategies will become a requirement. School marketers will scale down their social channels and retention issues will open up new opportunities. So starting with my first about digital footprints, I do think it's fair to say that this is kind of happening, but it's hard to tell just how strategic this is. And one of the things that I love about having these conversations and setting these predictions um, at the end of each year is that we're able to use a combination of our own perspectives on what we're seeing in the industry and layer them over the data that we collect over the course of the year. And so what's helpful here is that we have our state of enrollment marketing survey. And so we have data points around how schools and districts are using digital marketing tactics, the money that they're spending, the things that they're scaling back on, things that they're investing more in. And it does seem like, in general, digital marketing tactic adoption is increasing, but it's hard to tell just looking at the data where that's coming from. And so there were a couple of interesting things that I saw in the two surveys. One is that there seems to be this interesting disconnect between private and independent school marketers in particular, who know that a lot of the more traditional print-based marketing tactics that they're using are not necessarily effective and they're hard to measure, but they're still using them because they're getting mm -hmm. influence from other parts of their institutions a lot of the time to yep. continue to go down that path, which was something that came through in our open-ended responses this year. We need this. We've always done that. Parents are used we to it. We need it. Yep. You know, parents love it. Uh, someone commented on, I think, <laughs> yes, anecdotally, I think I had, I think it was Julie Falstick that said, you know, trustees love a print ad. And that is true. We're not seeing that necessarily in the district and charter side, which is interesting. There just seems to be, I mean, one, I don't think there's as much of a focus on true marketing and recruitment in the same way, even though we've seen continuous precipitous declines in enrollment on the, the traditional public school side in particular over the course of the last several years. There still isn't quite that focus on pure marketing. And that's a great segue into the fact that we saw a pretty big gap in how different segments are actually using digital marketing. So there's a chart for the folks listening at home in both of those surveys where you can actually see the difference side by side between how private and independent schools are using various tactics and how public and charter schools, traditional public and charter schools are using those tactics. And there's a pretty massive difference, which I thought was really interesting to actually mm -hmm. put them in that view and see what that looks like. And, you know, the last piece is that it seems like when it comes to marketing, when it comes to technology investment, the things that people are outsourcing, what I see the most questions around in groups and forums that I belong to, conference sessions, it's still very website focused. And then that's where it kind of ends. Yeah. On the one hand, I understand that, you know, your website is critically important, regardless of which segment that you're in. 
public school district websites have to work a lot harder than others because there's so many different constituencies that you have to serve. That's not to say that that's where everything begins and ends. You know, I think social media, organic social in particular, is also very popular among districts, but there are a lot of other things where there's room to grow, particularly as you think about the difference between engaging your current constituents versus what you need to do to actually recruit new families and teachers to a certain degree. Yeah. We're just not quite there yet. Not quite there yet. The marketing and the reputational work goes beyond the students. Yeah. So I think there's some room for improvement, but we're moving in the right direction Mm -hmm. for the next one. Keeping up with your peer schools will be more important than ever. Like I said before, with digital footprints, there is some room for improvement for sure. There's still a lot of variation in headcounts, the tactics that are being used, budgets. I'm not convinced that it's fully sunk in that schools across categories are competing with one another for family consideration. And so it's not just about an independent school benchmarking against other independent schools, but that independent school also has to benchmark against private religious schools, charter schools, really, really accomplished public school districts. You know, depending on where you live, the differences between an independent school and the free options in the area might not be that different. And parents are aware of that. They're savvy enough to really know that all of these different options are available to them homeschooling is something that's continuing to grow in adoption. I don't have a sense that this is happening quite to the degree that it needs to. I think that if you are with a school or district that is not paying attention to who your peer schools are, this is something that you absolutely need to start doing. Don't make assumptions about who your peers are. Ask your parents, you know, incorporate questions into your applicant surveys about who else your, you know, people in your admission cycle in the process have looked at, who they're comparing you to, where you fall on that comparison. We actually have a template that's gotten a lot of use that we can include in the show notes if you don't know where to start with an applicant survey. But I think those are really important. I think new family surveys are really important. If you're in a district or a charter situation, it's still good to have that context about what else your family is considered as they're coming in. And then if you're in an independent school situation, and actually some public school districts have done this as as well. There was an INSPRA session I attended specific to enrollment where a district did do this. You can ask people who go through the process of applying and don't choose you or families who leave where they're going. There was an article I did now years ago uh, looking at the difference between who is actually your peer versus aspiration. Mm-hmm. And that I think is something to remember with all this of there are the, there are the peer institutions who else are these families considering versus who do you think they are? Who do you want to be like? Yes. You know, just because you think someone is a peer does not mean in the eyes of students and families that they are. And that's why things like the the monthly report you get from Niche that drops in your inbox is so valuable because that looks at who else are these students and parents looking at when they mm-hmm. also look at your institution. I've had colleges argue with me and say, "Oh no, that's not that's not one of our competitors." But you know, if a student is looking and considering both of you, 
guess what? They actually are. Even if you're not that much alike, they're viewing them as replaceable. I think you've touched on something that's really important too, because this is also an area that you really dig into if you go through a comprehensive rebranding exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a big part of it is identifying what your peer institutions actually are. And it comes straight from the horse's mouth, right? When you get feedback from your community, you have to take that feedback, but you also have to create opportunities to get it in the first place. And I think sometimes in schools, there's a lot of navel gazing that can happen. (laughs) And we don't always take the time to pick our heads up and and Mm -hmm. gather that feedback uh, to get the pulse of the market. And that's really important. You don't want to focus on aspirational institutions or make assumptions about what other institutions are and aren't doing. It's really important to make sure that you're consistently getting that market feedback. It may be hard to hear some of the the feedback that you receive, but if you really want to approach enrollment marketing strategically, you have to go through that exercise. Absolutely. So next up, and this is actually driven by a parent survey question we asked last year, and the stat jumped even higher this year, but we asked about how many parents had a student who played a role in choosing the school that they ultimately enrolled in for the year. This one was so interesting to me. Oh, it's it's crazy. It's a, I mean... Short short answer is it's a lot. In the 2023 survey for students between 7th and 12th grade, it was close to 80%. We asked this question because this is something that when I was in-house, we were seeing more and more, but I really wanted to quantify it and, and put a number around it. The fact that that number has grown pretty significantly in the last year sent some alarm bells off for me, and I'm anticipating we'll see the same going into 2024 and the next admission cycle, I'm seeing schools reacting to this in different ways. Some are not reacting at all, (laughs) which is not helpful. I've definitely seen a proliferation of TikTok accounts explode in K-12 over the last year, which is fine, but not a strategy. It's a tactic. You know, we all know that TikTok is one of the places that, quote unquote, the kids are, but You've got to do a little bit better than that when you're thinking about how you want to engage students in, in mm-hmm. these younger age groups. If you have student ambassadors or clubs that you're engaged with, you know there are a lot of opportunities to tap into your current students to get their feedback on what they care about, what they're engaging with from a channel and content standpoint, and use some of that to start to inform what your strategy does look like for engaging prospective students, but you do need a strategy. This is something you can't afford to ignore anymore. And so I think the schools that really prioritize student engagement in the admission, enrollment, registration process, lottery process, you know, they're the ones that are going to see some really great results. I know that there's a lot of emphasis on TikTok and Instagram. YouTube is actually still a potential area of investment based on our data. If you have bandwidth for it, if you don't, just double down on what you're using. I do not recommend adopting new channels if you can't use them well. Hmm. Don't sleep on student engagement. I'm just going to keep clapping on that one. That is... (laughs) That is such a key one that you have to mm-hmm. be student centered. Just because students or parents use a channel doesn't mean they use it for 
what you want to do. And, and we see this on the higher ed surveys one. when we talk to students. We know a lot of students are using TikTok. We know a lot of students are using Reddit and YouTube and Instagram. When we ask that additional question of where are you going to official university accounts, that number drops way, way, way down and TikTok falls much further down the list. When you ask, are you using this for your college search, for college content, things like that, the numbers drop quite a bit. Just because they're in a location doesn't mean they're using it for everything in their lives. Right. I wouldn't go to McDonald's to get a library book. It's a mismatch. <laughs> sure. It, you know, it, <laughs> I don't want to do everything everywhere. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great point because when I first asked this question and dug into the channels that students were using as part of the school search and comparison process, people were surprised to see that TikTok was lower on the list. It was actually mm -hmm. below YouTube and it was for that yeah. very reason. And I, you know, when I would share this information in presentations, I would say, yes, we see lots of really big numbers about how Gen Z and to a certain degree, Generation Alpha is starting to creep on to channels like TikTok. You know, we know that that's kind of the king of content consumption when it comes to younger generations and older ones. You know, the same thing that's happened on Facebook and Instagram is happening on TikTok. Now, I know lots of middle-aged women who spend a whole bunch of time, <laughs> a lot more than I do, on TikTok. That's not what they're using it for. They're using it for entertainment. That's not what they're using it for at this point. And, sure, and I said, my prediction is next year, we're going to see that tick up again. And that's exactly what we saw. And so mm -hmm. this year, TikTok and YouTube are actually neck and neck in terms of students using it for this purpose. And so I think that's coming, but I think the channel is still fairly young. They're just not quite at a point where there's a critical mass of students using it for that specific purpose. Yes. In a prior life, when I did a lot of speaking on social media and using that for admissions and engagement, I always would highlight the idea and keep hammering that home. I think this is something that, that you're getting at here as well. You do not have to be everywhere, but you do have to be good where you are. Yes. Right. You can't till a field if you can't commit to the upkeep and harvest. <laughs> Does not make sense to try and be everywhere and have this account that's basically just copying what you're doing somewhere else or it, it's just not being used in a way that fits the platform. It's not speaking to the audience. Don't do it just because the kids are there, or the parents are there. Or It's so true. So true. You really do have to have a channel specific strategy. There there was a time when you could copy paste your posts and spray them all over yep. the internet, but you can't do that anymore. No. People no. won't respond to that. And that's actually a great segue that's a good into segue. my social <laughs> channel prediction. And this was one that actually is happening. It's that school marketer, school marketers, I don't know what a marketer is, Marketor. will scale down their social channels. And we have Mr. Musk and <laughs> the artist formerly known as Twitter <laughs> X <laughs> to, to thank for this trend to a degree that I have not seen since probably MySpace. I mm. am seeing and hearing lots of people and organizations start to question their presence on X. And, and that's really ramped up in the last month or so. And so there are a lot of schools and districts, districts in particular, that are still wrestling with whether or not to let that go. I understand that. You know, if you're a district that's built up a huge audience on X and 
you're using it as a primary form for communications, for media engagement, and those connections have not yet migrated somewhere else. It's a tough call to make. For private and independent schools, I mean, Twitter, when it was Twitter, was a giant Mm. question mark when I left being in-house almost three years ago. At this point, I feel like it's a much easier question to answer because in my experience, the parents weren't really there. The students were moving elsewhere. It just didn't really move the needle for us. So I think if you're in that space, it's an easier call to make. There are a couple of challenges. You know, Threads has not quite emerged as the one-to-one replacement that people, I think, are looking for. But I also think with time and commitment, it could get there. My question is whether or not people are willing to wait. I think that Mm -hmm. we've all become increasingly impatient thanks to social media. And so people are feeling, you know, the loss of the communities that they built in Twitter's heyday, you know, when it really did feel like you were creating these spaces for community and knowledge sharing and connection. You know, I'm still attending conferences that have tweet ups, but I also deleted my own account in November. It does feel like there's a void and it's hard for me to find the time. Honestly, I got so used to not posting on Twitter that finding time to now engage in threads is becoming difficult because I appreciated the time I got back from that. There's some soul searching that schools and districts need to do with this. I would imagine as time marches on, we're going to see some more migration away from that. If you decide to scale back the number of platforms that you're on, though, you still have to worry about rogue accounts for the platforms that you're on. And that's something that I think is always going to be an issue. If you say, you know what, as a school or a district, we're only going to worry about Facebook, Instagram, and let's say YouTube. That's great, but you're still going to have the random Instagram accounts that are Mm -hmm. using your logo or your mascot. And, you know, I think that's a battle that school marketers are always going to be fighting. So it's something you're going to need to be aware of and have a plan for. But, you know, the the selection process and the choose to stay process for, for any platform, it's the same things that we always tell people, you know, go where your audience is, where the engagement is, focus on the channels that you know to align with the goals that you have over the course of each academic year. And if you're not seeing results, if you're not seeing engagement, if you're not seeing that your community is really connected with a specific channel, then give yourself permission to walk away. The key there being your community, not a few people. You may have (laughs) a couple dozen really engaged people and that's, that's great, but yeah, you know, that you need to speak to a much bigger audience than that. And if speaking to those few highly engaged people is taking up so much time that you can't speak to a wider audience and build your brand. So now I have my last one and then we'll kick it over to Will. And I'm going to ask very few follow-up questions because I've spoken so much. But (laughs) my last one is retention issues will open up new opportunities. And this is something that we're actually seeing. So I guess I'm two for five. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have scored scored us quite so high. I think you might do better. We'll see. We are seeing this, as I mentioned, and I was actually encouraged in our state of enrollment marketing survey to see that 
student and parent experience is increasing in importance for schools across the board. And that is a direct connection to retention. You know, what this tells me is that schools are really starting to see that retention is something that requires its own strategy. It doesn't just happen. They're starting to realize that you have to put resources and work toward holding on to your families. And that's really encouraging. I just hope that we start to see a little bit more structure and more of that intentionality around retention. And and that's, again, across the board. Right. And so it was interesting to see that retention, retaining current families to be specific, was a priority for districts because I'm not seeing as much investment on the recruitment side. And the two really kind of go hand in hand. So I, I think that's worth mentioning. But the fact that schools are thinking more and working harder to hold on to their families is really encouraging because that's, you know, it's a lot easier and less expensive than trying to recruit new ones. Yes. Yeah. Unless, unless you are an area in a place that's just booming with people moving in, <laughs> right. you gotta, you gotta hold on to who you have. And those interest rates are high. So we're yeah. not seeing a whole, <laughs> whole lot of, you know, long-term moves happening. The real estate mm. market has slowed. We're not seeing, you know, the people are returning to work now. Those mandates are, are starting to come back. So we're seeing people boomerang to where they were before. We're seeing yep. fewer, my, the migration patterns that we were seeing, you know, a couple of cycles ago have really slowed down. So, you know, really leaning into who you have is a good strategy for everybody. Yes. All right. Well, I, I had six higher ed predictions for this past year. It's a lot. <laughs> We'll see how many were aspirational and how many were predictive. That's always the fun part. Yeah. So my my first thing, we saw this rise in window shopping. And when I say window shopping in the sense of education, it's these students who are going in, they're doing their search online, they're looking at, at niche and other places, at the college website, and ultimately becoming secret shoppers because they haven't raised their hand in an inquiry form. And so I, my prediction there was that Window shopping will become more popular until colleges can provide a tangible benefit to engaging directly with them. There wasn't that, why should I fill out an inquiry form when I can already find all the information on your site and elsewhere and do my research that way. But this year we saw a sharp rise in students actually submitting inquiry forms. Uh, And I was actually just recently having a conversation with a university out in the Great Plains who said they've seen a rise in inquiries there as well okay, they're feeling like they have a reason to now, which is which is good. Yeah. We had seen this falling to only 72%, which is still the majority of students filling out an inquiry form and 60% of them filling out more than one. So these are students who were going ahead, going to colleges, filling out that form. This past year, for the class of 2023, we saw 87% saying they filled out one and 77% filling out more than one. So I think that this could be this return to normal again. We saw this in a lot of other things where there's this reflection in terms of things bouncing back the direction they came. This is part of that, I believe. So the class of 2023, if we go backwards there, they went to lockdown the spring of their freshman year. So it's possible that they have become more comfortable and more used to advocating for themselves online. They've become Mm -hmm. used to raising their hand rather than someone will help me if I need it. That's interesting. 
I'll leave the full why there to sociologists. That's not my area <laughs> of expertise. It's an interesting trend. We saw this in a number of areas with that reflection back to pre-pandemic. I was going to say, are there some other things that you've seen, other behaviors that mm-hmm. are kind of boomeranging back from the term post-pandemic feels a little weird yeah. <laughs> to say. <laughs> yeah, it's more of it's part of a normal life now instead of mm-hmm. massive disruption. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, a number of things in terms of student willingness to go further from home for college. I've talked about as a rubber band snap in the past. Everyone's stuck with mom and dad. And then we saw this <laughs> explosion of, of more and more students saying they wanted to get more than two, more than four hours from home for college. And we're seeing that retract back again to, to more normal. But it's interesting. It's not fully going back. There's sort of this, this donut of one to two hours from home that they want. So you're still close enough to be close to mom and dad. You're not far away to be completely independent on your own, but you're also not driving distance from home. You fast drive from home. Right. I've coined a new phrase here that I don't know if it'll catch on or not. But again, <laughs> going back to my, my Midwest roots here, you're working your neighbor's field. Instead of owning your backyard or you have this further <laughs> afield, this distance recruiting plan, you have to be able to work your neighbor's field. So right next door, it's the students who kind of know you. They have some mm-hmm. passing familiarity, but it's not like you're in their backyard either. Right. Right. I like that. I was actually going to call it the laundry effect. You know, they want to be just close enough for if they need to yeah. get that load in <laughs> at mom and dad's, not deal with the yeah. coins. <laughs> yeah. But still, by the time you think of the gas it takes to get home, isn't it cheaper to just do your laundry on campus? That's so true. I wonder if the frontal lobe is developed enough to make that leap. I know mine was not. I was willing to make that two-hour drive. Who drove? Oh my goodness! <laughs> Although once I met my husband, it became a shorter drive, and I went to my now mother-in-law's house. But there was a time. Was I was going to ask if you were one of those people, and we have our answer. I was yeah. never. I was never that person. I never went home to do laundry. I, don't I was know what an that hour says and a half from me. home. I don't know what that says about me. I really don't. Yeah, I don't. You you missed your dad. You wanted to go see him. You wanted. That's what it was. That's probably yes. Yeah. Not the laundry. <laughs> that was the added bonus. I mean, window shopping is always going to be a thing. You always have these secret shoppers who aren't really so secret. They're mm-hmm. they're doing the research on their own. But students are becoming more willing to fill out the inquiry form again. And part of that, when we did secret shopping. The inquiry forms have gotten a lot better. They're shorter. They are more relevant. That's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, there's still a lot of them are way too long, but (laughs) they got shorter. So there's been that improvement. So I think part of it's that part of it is maybe with more access to their counselors again, their counselors are telling them, hey, don't forget to fill out the inquiry form so they know about you. Second prediction here. Marketing offices will invest time and energy into reinventing comflows. Comflows have been very static, very much a volume game. And we've seen significant improvement. There's even some institutions making staffing and partnership investments to get there. Yeah, we're getting getting there. There's way too much volume still. Uh, I had Mm. a great conversation recently where someone said, well, we have to send more emails because our, our peers are. Oh, no. (laughs) If you pull back, if you pull back and you focus on the relevance and the quality, they're not going to forget about you. Right. If you're sending out 
one or two emails a week that are irrelevant and irritating. Maybe send out one every other week that really speaks to what they're interested in. You know, supplement with a postcard. I'm not a big fan of postcards, but if they're done well, they can be a nice supplement. Exactly. Supplement them with a text message. Supplement them with with a student phone call. I mean, there's lots of ways you can supplement your comm flow with a lot of different channels, different tactics, but we're seeing some improvement there at least. That's encouraging. And it's also really interesting that there's the perspective that other schools are sending a lot of emails. So we should also be sending a lot of emails so that we can all overwhelm our prospective students with a bunch of things that they don't want to read. Well, it it makes sense because that's the same way that a lot of things are done. Yeah. Yeah. Do we need a McDonald's on every corner? No, but the more you see it, there's this belief that it'll it'll impact that. The big stat here, uh, when we look at the class of 2024, 26% of them said they were receiving very personalized and relevant outreach. That's up from 9%. So huge spike. Ooh. I think that that's wow. awesome. So the, the shift, though, was a lot from saying, well, yeah, some of them are to receiving very. So that's great. But we still had 20% of students in the class 2024, so the senior class saying that all colleges look and sound alike. Mm -hmm. So we have great progress, but still work to do. That number should ideally be zero. (laughs) Right. You know, if they hear a phrase, if they see a picture, ideally they don't say, oh, that could be anywhere. Yeah. So Yeah, I think that's Everyone likes to say, well, we have small class sizes and we have caring Mm -hmm. faculty and buzzword bingo. Yep. Oh, yeah. As we've talked about many times, that is true across segments. And I still, yep. even in things that I see that are really well done, I, I see the the buzzwords and the yep. recurring phrases that don't actually tell you anything unique about the institution. So there's there's room to grow there for sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the same thing in other industries too. So it's not unique to education. I don't, I don't want true. people to think that. There's just a lot more competition in education than there right. are elsewhere. Like how many different auto brands are there? How many different, right. you know, clothing manufacturers are there? And then you have yeah. over 4,000 higher ed institutions. Mm-hmm. So it makes it easier to sound like everyone else. Yeah. Features versus benefits, guys. That's the, that's the rub. Number three here. As direct admissions grows quickly and builds awareness, students will be less likely to put up with barriers in the application experience. Absolutely. Absolutely nailed that one. Students are not interested in all these barriers. Direct admissions is growing very quickly. I mean, at Niche, we've got over 80 colleges on board. I won't say exact number because by the time this drops, it'll be higher. (laughs) But we're seeing a lot of deposits already for 2024. Um, Soon here, and actually by the time this comes out, it'll probably already be on the blog, a data look at our second year. So last year's cycle, we had tremendous outcomes there in terms of the number of students finding a college, getting in, getting their scholarship offer upfront, and ultimately enrolling, we're beating last year significantly. While there are these articles that look at one company and saying it doesn't work, we're seeing the opposite there. And students are noticing, counselors are noticing. The three biggest barriers the students are facing right now when we ask them what's preventing them from applying, right now it's deciding where to apply. They have a lot of options. Writing essays and application fees. I mean, especially 
yeah, the fees, I mean, if you're looking at $250, $500 per app and you don't know, I mean, you're applying basically to earn the right to pay money to the college. So yeah. I'm paying you for the right to pay you money. Uh, I've never been a fan of app fees. I understand why they exist. Doesn't mean I have to like them. The <laughs> argument is always, well, we have app fee waivers for low-income students, things like that. That requires a student to raise it. One, be aware of it. Two, raise right. their hand and say, I can't afford this. And are they supposed to then believe that that will help their chances of being accepted? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're having a hard time paying the application fee, how hard is it going to be to pay for books, tuition, room and board, all that? Exactly. exactly. So that, I mean, with the deciding where to apply, they've got a lot, a lot of options. Absolutely makes sense. Writing essays. One, if you're filling out an app on your phone, how easy is it to write a 500 word essay on your phone? That sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> really I can't imagine does. that. That's and, and terrible. <laughs> I feel like I am dating myself so much, but oh my God, I, I can't even imagine. Ugh. No, I, I I don't think I would have written an essay because I don't know that I want, we, well, one, we had very, very slow dial-up internet. So yep. this yep. was the, yep. the days of a lot of paper apps for us. Yeah, handwriting multiple essays would have been not fun on top of all the schoolwork. I, I always challenge people, if you require an essay, I want you to look back at the past few years. How many times has that essay prevented someone from being accepted? Or how many times has it taken someone who was going to be denied and gotten them accepted? If the answer is like, well, 0.5% of the time, you know, yeah. well, why, why are you making everyone do it for right. a tiny number? Instead, look at, are there other ways that you could have benefited that student? It's a great point. It's yeah. a great point. I cannot think of a time in several years that we had essays that, a student was denied or accepted solely based on that essay. The majority of students say that they abandon an application or never started one because of barriers with the length, all these additional application submissions, the essays, test scores, multiple references, things like that, or just how confusing it was. So especially mm -hmm. for first-gen students, the lingo on there can be confusing. Knowing what they mean by questions can be confusing. What you need to submit can be confusing. So they just either choose not to apply or abandon that partway through. But overall, the number one reason the app was abandoned or chosen not to even start was the application fee. Wow. And this is phrased as, and students' answers as, this was a college you were interested in attending. Not just, well, I heard of them, maybe I would apply. It was, hey, that's a place I can see myself. I want to go there. And they ultimately didn't even finish an application because of issues like that. And we saw too that, I mean, students are applying to a lot of schools. Oh, yeah. And so when you add that fee, when you multiply that by 10, 15, yeah. yep. I mean, that's that's a huge investment. It's a huge yeah. investment. Yeah. Even if it's, let's say it's a $25 fee. Yeah. If you're applying to 10 colleges, that's $250 yeah. for a kid. You know, it's a lot. I don't know. I don't know it's what their tooth fairy money looks like, but uh, <laughs> better than mine did. I will tell yeah. you that. Yep. My, <laughs> those dimes don't add up that fast. <laughs> Removing these barriers, moving to direct admissions. We're seeing a lot of colleges offer these pathways. 
Ultimately, when we asked class 2024, 80% of them said that they were more interested in a college that offered direct admissions and didn't make them jump through the hoops. And so we do things like asking, well, what about this? And, and we have all these free response that we dig through and look for the trends. And, and one of the major things there that kept coming up is that students were saying they believe the college that removes barriers cares more about them. Wow. When you think about what these kids are used to in terms of what parenting looks like, moms and dads are removing barriers. You know, they're smoothing the road for them. So when colleges do the same thing, I think there's that level of connection. That's really powerful. So the more barriers you can remove, and that's one that I think, absolutely, we're seeing this rise in direct admissions at the state level, niche, elsewhere. It is about opening pathways for students, helping Mm -hmm. them see themselves at places that maybe they were on the fence if they were even prepared for college. Yeah. I know you, you and I see this a lot with the student testimonials, but the student who had said that during the pandemic, they were really struggling, their grades had slipped a little, and so they weren't sure they were going to be able to go to college. They got this offer, they got the scholarship up front, and they said, oh, and this is the piece that always gets to me, maybe I am good enough. Yeah. Like yeah. they were associating their ability to go to college with, are they good enough? Yeah, their self-worth. Yeah. It's re- it's really I I see direct admissions as being about so much more than access and opportunity. It's actually mm-hmm. giving some students hope. It's giving them yeah. confidence. It's making a really powerful difference and I think the thing that you also see when we watch these testimonials is just how much students are tying their self-worth to those outcomes. You know, I mean, it's, it's to, to a degree that is even, I mean, I, I think the narrative around the importance of higher education and getting into the right school and all of that is, is yeah. you know, a tale as old as time. But to see the degree to which students are tying their value as people to whether or not they go to college, where they go to college, and to see those walls being broken down is something that's incredibly powerful and encouraging and something that I I know we're all looking forward to seeing continue to grow in adoption Mm -hmm. because it is such a difference maker in this industry. Yeah, yeah. All right, next one here. Test optional will remain the dominant model and expand because it means one less application barrier for students. Uh, well, yes, it is absolutely still the dominant. Yes, it has expanded. Mm-hmm. We had one or two colleges that did go back to requiring it. They want that hoop for students to jump through. Uh, when we asked students, ultimately 62% said they submitted test scores to at least one college, either because it was required. The more concerning part to me is students saying that, well, even though they say they don't require it, I think they'll secretly prefer me because I submitted it. I think they secretly right. don't want it's like, I don't know where that comes from, but yeah, uh, it's like, well, yeah, they say they don't want, but they, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. They, they still do. <laughs> uh, that's hopefully, hopefully counselors and other advocates can get behind the messaging there and say, look, if it's something that you want to submit, you can, but they're not going to consider it or they're going to consider it in these ways. And part of that comes down to the college doing a better job of saying, here is how we use it. Right. If you have this score, it would be beneficial because, 
And a lot of that's missing. Yeah. There's not really the the why and how. Right? Is it used for scholarships? Well, in that case, I would say it's not really optional because right. if you need financial aid, then you have to submit it. You have to uh, do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it is it helpful if you have below this GPA? Is it helpful below this class rank? Okay, then be upfront about that. Communicate that to students, to counselors, elsewhere. It just makes sense. Yeah. Clarity, clarity, clarity. Exactly. So yeah, that's one test optional. Nailed that one on the head that test optional is still the way to go. Test blind is, I would love to see more of that, but we'll get there. I said that I, I was a I was a generous scorer, but I think you're doing a lot better <laughs> than I did with your predictions. Oh, just wait, just <laughs> wait. Here's one uh, that was purely aspirational uh, uh, that I'll give myself an F on. We'll see a rise in roles and responsibilities focused on student experience during the recruitment and enrollment process. Oh, this is absolutely aspirational. But staffing is down. <laughs> People are struggling just to rehire open positions. I spoke too soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As of today, I looked at higher ed jobs. Not all jobs are on higher ed jobs. But as of today, there are 1,700 open admissions positions and 1,300 marketing positions on campuses. So (laughs) if you're struggling to even staff back up, you're probably not making big shifts towards hiring people to focus on student experiences. Like the essentially think of it like your your CX roles and Mm -hmm. and admissions Mm -hmm. where they're solely focused on meeting the persona, building the personas. How do we make sure we're tailoring experiences, calm flow details to the students? I would love to see more of it. I think that's something that has to happen now with you know we've got fewer students college students applying to more colleges how are you differentiating how are you building the the affinity how are you building the stickiness where Mm -hmm. the students are saying i'm connected to these things at that college i have more connections at this college than the other one that's probably where i'm going to go yeah and there have been a few colleges hiring this type of role there's not not any significant shift at all well it's a big opportunity then yeah. Right. We can't check the box and say we did it, but it's an yeah. opportunity. <laughs> and it's one of those two that the rich will get richer, I think. The colleges who yeah. have yeah. the the staffing who are doing well will have the flexibility to do things like this. The colleges right. that need it the most, I I believe anyway, maybe I'm gonna be wrong here and, and maybe I'll be wrong for next year. <laughs> I think they'll have to almost turtle up here and say, Yeah, you know, we we're just gonna rehire and try and get by with doing what we've always done whereas they could benefit more from differentiating doing things like this last one here shorter and more flexible grad programs will expand there has been movement in four plus one certificate programs things like that it's still in flux though it's not this massive shift students want that type of flexibility there's opportunities to engage lifelong learners with doing these types of things it takes time not going to be this quick shift that I hope it will be, but we're still there. I think what we saw a lot this past year was issues arising with OPMs, more scrutiny on these types of partnerships. So that makes it a little bit harder because they can make these kinds of quick shifts. Yeah. I would love to see colleges offering more certificates, more pathways, linking grad and undergrad together. It's just not really as quick as I want it to be. Online (laughs) and hybrid programs are still very appealing for grad searchers. While they're not for undergrad, that opens up a worldwide market, really. Yeah. 
if you can reach people who want short certificates, short grad programs, flexible grad programs, you've got an enormous audience. You just have to have the foresight and the staffing to do it. Yeah, I think it just goes back to our earlier discussion around removing barriers and friction, right? People want what they want the way that they want it. And there are so many other aspects of their lives where they have that simplicity and that ease. They're starting to expect it in education as well. They have been for some time. So I think that's really something for folks to think about. Yeah. If I can watch TV shows on demand, why can't I take classes on demand? Absolutely. Absolutely. And while we realize those things are wholly different, (laughs) there's an expectation being set based on your experiences and everything else. Right. And that was a doozy. We covered a lot of ground. We did, but we we got there. (laughs) And this is our last episode of 2023. Shocking. I can't believe it. (laughs) Overall, good year. Thank you for for joining me on this journey, Angela. (laughs) I hope everyone has a great end to the year. Or if you're listening to this in the new year, I hope the new year started off well. If you're listening to this in 2027, I hope we're all still here. But, uh. <laughs> the robots haven't taken over. Yep. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we didn't even get into that. That's for another episode. Yes. Yeah. We'll come back to that later. <laughs> well, have a good one, everybody. Stay safe. Bye, all <laughs>